So we're, we're starting a new series uh, this week. So if you want to um, prepare for the next weeks and months, uh, however long it takes um, to work through this letter, you might want to go home this week and just get a feel for the uh, first letter of Peter, the book of Peter. So just read it through, um, get used to it, understand the kind of big picture, but we're going to be working through uh, this letter over this next period of time. We're calling it Compelled, uh, and hopefully um, today we'll create a foundation for why I think Compelled is an appropriate kind of banner heading for this book that we're going to work through today. I guess one of the things that um, all of us are conscious of is that there are certain encounters in our lives, whether they are encounters with people, whether they are encounters with ideas, whether they are encounters with certain uh, events or situations, those encounters, those events, those moments shape us. Now, I guess one of the things about encounters, as soon as we use that phrase, one of the things that we immediately imagine don't we, is we think about the idea as this kind of explosive encounter. The reality is that there are many encounters which are far more, if you like, uh, subconscious. They're ongoing encounters. Uh, All of us today are experiencing what it means to live in this country at this particular point in history with this ongoing encounter of our society around us, thoughts and ideas, shaping the way we live, shaping the way we think. Um, And and many of those encounters have taken significant periods of time to emerge. I'll give you just one example. The genius that was Steve Jobs uh, refused point-blank for years and years and years, in the face of all of his engineers, insisting that he would not put a keyboard on the iPhone. Uh, And there were engineers for years and years who were fighting this idea, who were saying, we need to have a keyboard because, after all, that is the way that everybody interfaces. And yet now, we're living in a world where for many people... I wouldn't say everybody, or even perhaps, I would say probably the majority, getting towards the majority, we are pretty much, most of us now, used to the idea that we interface with just a screen. So much so that a little child goes up to many screens and kind of smears their finger across it, TVs, you can see this, uh, you go to a TV with little children and you get smear marks, normally in kind of horizontal and vertical lines across the TV because they expect (laughs) the TV to move because after all, that's what screens do. There has been a, a kind of subconscious, pervasive, ongoing, um, compelling way of shifting the way we live and the way we act. Now, if that can happen on such a relatively insignificant thing 
as the way we interface with our phones and our computing devices, how much more is that happening to you and to me on a daily basis in the way in which we reshape our attitudes and the way we think about moral and ethical issues, about the way we decide how to live day by day, the way we spend our time, the priorities that we make in our lives, all of those things, everything that is happening to us, we are being compelled in a continuous stream or at moments in our life in a kind of confronting moment of event. Now, to understand that is absolutely essential when we come to the Christian faith. Because after all, one of the things that we see that the Christian faith is, as it unveils itself through God's Word, and particularly as it unveils itself through this letter, which is what it is, is that we, we are compelled to live differently. We are compelled to think differently. We are compelled to be reshaped reorientated, changed. There are many uh, words that have been used down through the centuries to describe that. Conversion is one. It's been converted, changed. We've been redeemed, brought back. So many good Bible words, so many outside of the Bible good words which have been used to describe this kind of significant change that has gone on. Now, this letter is written to a group of people on the back of that compelling change. And if that's what it is, if it's a letter in the Bible which is speaking about that kind of life, then it's essential for us today, isn't it? And hopefully what we can see as we work through the first two verses, we will pick up the pace, don't worry. We're going to only just work through the first two verses. If you've got a printed Bible in front of you, you can see why, because it's just the introduction. First two verses is the introduction. We're going to work through those first two verses, and we're going to see why it's creating a foundation for this compelled life. You might be here this afternoon. It's great that you're uh, able to share this afternoon with us, You might not be in the situation where you are saying, I am compelled in that way. I'm interested, but I'm not compelled. I'm interested in this Christian faith, but I'm not significantly day-to-day changed. I'm delighted that you're here and sharing in this time with us. Hopefully, one of the outcomes of these next few minutes is that you're able to see the foundation on which the Christian faith is more than a set of ideas. It is a compelling, life-changing message, event, and implication. So, like most letters, we're going to have a look at, um, firstly, who it's from. So, we'll start at the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, unlike our letters, which start with dear so-and-so, this letter starts with 
Who it's from? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. It's an interesting phrase, just think it's quite helpful for us in understanding how the Bible works. That word apostle, it's used in the, throughout the New Testament, uh, and it seems as though that word is used in not just one way, but probably, well, it is used in two ways. There are two ways in which that word apostle is used. Both carry significant bearers of message ideas, carriers of message, but they're different. So, so we f- firstly see um, the idea of an apostle as being a recognized spiritual leader. So we see in Acts chapter 14 and verse 14, Barnabas is described as an apostle. We see in Romans chapter 16 and verse 7, Andronicus and Junia are described as apostles. They're described as people who are bearers, carriers of that significant message. There's another way in which that word apostle is also used. It's also used with, with, if you like, we could say that the first one is apostle with a small a. We can also recognize that the word apostle is also used in the New Testament with a capital A. It's a recognition of a certain person. Uh, And that is somebody who is the authorized spokesperson of Jesus, which is dependent upon them being an eyewitness of Jesus. That's another way and probably the most significant way in which the word apostle is used in the New Testament. So so straight away, as we open up this letter, we're seeing that there is is an explanation that we can open ourselves up to. There is something significant going on. This is somebody who Peter, as we know, Peter is one of those who carries, he is clearly writing, this letter in that second capacity of being somebody who is the authorized bearer and custodian of the message of Jesus with an authority that is carried through by the fact that he was an eyewitness of Jesus himself. So we, if just think for a moment what that actually involves, we've got a group of people who for three years, as Jesus was traveling around a relatively small part of the world, relatively speaking, who were actually spending significant, almost 24-7 time with him, watching him, listening to him, being taught by him, being commissioned by him at certain times to do certain jobs, being sent to do this, being sent to do that, being in that, uh, that upper room with him as he conveyed to them specific messages, specific truths, uh, and then being told that they would be the bearers of this truth, being spoken to as Peter was, being spoken to 
directly by Jesus and saying effectively that you one day are going to be bound and you're going to be carried away and your life will not be in your own hands, your life will be in the hands of those who carry you away and your life will be taken for the sake of this message. That is massive, isn't it? That is who we are dealing with. We're dealing with somebody, and Peter, when he uses that opening phrase, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's making that initial statement, which is saying, effectively, I am conveying this message to you with that kind of direct authority. That means that if I happen, which I don't, but if I happened to use the small a apostle, it would only be in the context of being a bearer of the message which was authoritatively carried first by the capital A apostles. And Peter was one of them. And he was writing to these individuals in that capacity. And it's an incredible thing. Was it just, and here's the next critical piece of the the jigsaw that, that kind of presents itself in this opening verse, was all that Peter stood for dependent upon those three years where he was with Jesus? No, it wasn't. Jesus said it wasn't going to be dependent solely on those three years. He was authoritative because he was with Jesus, but Jesus himself said to those, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, here's the thing. That was, that's, we read that, Jesus said that to the apostles in John chapter 14. Can I be reminded of something which Jesus said if I wasn't there? <laughs> no. I can't be reminded, can I, if I wasn't there? Therefore, Jesus is speaking specifically to those who were with him at that time those who were ministering with him, and he's saying there is going to be something remarkable that is going to happen. The remarkable event that is going to happen is that the Holy Spirit, who is going to be my continued teacher, advocate, spokesperson into the world, is going to engage with you and remind you of everything that I said and will teach you more. That is essential. It's essential. Because when we read the Gospels, when we read what Jesus actually said, as far as we see recorded by those Gospel writers, we don't see a massive amount of explanation about what Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension was going to be about. We don't see that. We, we, 
Jesus says it's going to happen, but he doesn't say what it's about. Therefore, and this is absolutely essential for you and me today, do we just sit back and say, okay, well, we can observe Jesus' death and resurrection and we can kind of, we can all make up for ourselves. We can all decide for ourselves what Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension is all about. Can we do that? Are we permitted, according to God's word, each one of us, to just sit down in prayerful thought and just say, I wonder what that means. And I'll just come up with all sorts of different ideas. No, we can't. And the reason that we can't is because God did not stop his revelation to this world in Jesus. He carried on his revelation in this, to this world through the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus promised that they would be reminded of everything, everything that was said and taught the implications of what that means. And everything else is then dependent on what is conveyed by those apostles. That's what's going on. And so what we read here in the statement that Peter is making is essential to the Christian faith. The message of the New Testament is dependent upon God's revelation in Trinity form. Let's get that clear. God's revelation is in Trinity form. It is in the form of Jesus present and it is in the form of the ongoing teaching of the Holy Spirit by way of the apostles which which establishes the truth for you and for me today, which we continue to be workers with which we continue to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and to help us and encourage us and to teach us and to cause us to think. But the framework within which we operate is that which is taught by the Holy Spirit to the capital A Apostles. It's great that, isn't it? That might sound, I guess for all of us, It can be one of two things. It can either sound constraining or it can sound securing. I love that it is securing. I love that the anchor and the ropes tied to the anchor are not dependent upon human ideas but are dependent upon the Holy Spirit working in the capital A Apostles, and then the Holy Spirit securing what the capital A Apostles taught and making sure that you and me have got it today. Isn't that remarkable? What makes up this book? Well, this book, (laughs) the New Testament... The parts of the Bible which are secured by the ongoing stream 
of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is making sure that you and me have got these deep, securing anchors that teach us what Jesus is all about. It is not free for all. (laughs) Of course, of course, within that, and we, we can have all sorts of different thoughts and ideas of what, that, what this might mean, that's fine. It's great that we should have those kind of conversations. Great that we should be thinking about what this means. But it's contained within this framework of the New Testament, which is given to us by Trinitarian revelation, the work of God. Next thing we see, So, Peter is the author, probably from Rome, probably a relatively short time before he dies, at the hands of the onslaught of Nero persecution. So, uh, the emperor Nero unleashed huge persecution across the Christian church, Peter was one of those who was taken. So obviously he's written this before he suffered that. Who's he written it to? To God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Exiles. What does that mean? God's elect, exiles. There's a word that's used, um, it's, called, it's the diaspora, that's the word that's actually there, the diaspora. The diaspora means actually the scattered. What, who is he actually addressing? Is he just addressing a mass of Christians? Well, in actual fact, this idea of God's elect and exiles scattered is a specific way that the Bible uses language to describe Jews people who have a Jewish heritage and background, but have now been scattered from their homeland. We've got a, a map which we can, we can actually see uh, where this is. You can see those of you who've been to uh, the Mediterranean, you've got Greece over uh, on the left-hand side there, and then you've got the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and then we've got this, this block of land which is uh, now partly Turkey. And we've got Asia Minor, which sits between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. All of these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, sit in that space. That ain't Jerusalem. That isn't Judea. And yet Peter is writing here to those who are as he describes God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of. So they are those individuals who have a a heritage, a family line, a background, who are Jews, and yet at the same time, they are scattered outside of where this happened on many, many occasions uh, for God's people. It reinforces what Paul writes about in Galatians. He says, essentially, we've got this this clear kind of structure in the New Testament where we've got 
uh, two people, two men who are significant in the, in, the, in the communicating of the message of Jesus to the world as it was. Paul and Peter. Paul, very clearly, has, spends most of his time engaging with those who are non-Jews, the Gentiles. Peter, on the other hand, spends his time engaging with those who are Jews. He says this, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 8, For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, or to the Jews, Peter, who was an apostle uh, to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So here we've got this reinforcement of who Peter is speaking to. Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. Paul engages in just this area, exactly the same area, geographically, and yet the focus of his attention is to those who are non-Jews. Peter's focus is to those who are Jews. Well, we kind of say, well, so what? Ah, wow. Just wait a moment, because I think that the fact that he is writing to these individuals makes this letter have the potential to speak to you and me in an amazing way for today. Just think about what it might have meant. What we now know about these, uh, about these uh, scattered Jews, they were actually looked down on. They were pretty much despised by the Orthodox Jews. That those who'd, who'd stayed in the kind of Judea, Jerusalem area, those who'd stayed in the homeland. These individuals were not considered to be the elite. They, they might have been Jews by kind of birth. They weren't really, really Jews. So they'd, they'd not made the effort to come back. They'd not made the effort to come back, had they? They might have been second, third, fourth generation Jewish heritage living in these particular areas away from their homeland. But they hadn't made the effort to come back. In fact, what they were was individuals who, what we now see, they had spent a significant uh, amount of time, and they were really committed to understanding maybe what their heritage was, but they were really, really interested in integrating into the society that they lived in. They traded. Many were really successful, very successful traders, merchants, owners of property owners of people, thoroughly integrated into the world in which they lived, surrounded by, as we would see, outside of God's homeland, if you like, the Jewish nation, surrounded by all of the ideas of the, G the Greek world as it was emerging at that time. It's called the Hellenistic world. 
the Greek ideas, Greek thought, Greek ways of doing things. Logic had emerged as the foundation of the way that we think. Commerce had emerged under these great empires. And here's what, here were individuals who were just, they were living in that environment and they were immersed in that environment. And yet, at the same time, although they might have been despised by those who were considered themselves the really kind of ultra-Orthodox, they never really quite fitted in either to the world that they had immersed themselves in. There was always that little something. You know, I think we live in a fascinating time in the history of Western society, and particularly this country. I think that idea reflects amazingly on our own situation. We've got a thousand years of Christianity shaping this country. We, we live with that kind of heritage. We live with that kind of idea. But for most of us, it's not life-changing. It might not be life-changing for you today. It might be just a factor. Recognize that it's shaped our laws. Recognize that it's shaped even the structure of our counties uh, and parishes and all of those kind of things. Yes, it's there, but I am thoroughly, thoroughly integrated into this world as I see it today. Uh, that, that's the past. Doesn't it just sound so like these people who were living in Asia Minor? They might have had that heritage, but you know, I am totally immersed in today. I am committed to now. I am committed to it as it is. We might even claim something. I've had so many conversations where there's been this conversation which says, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm Christian. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that actually mean? Does it mean that I have this heritage, which means that the kind of moral and ethical framework in which I basically live is shaped by this past? I would guess many of these guys you would say, who are you? Well, my heritage is Jewish. As he sat uh, with all of his Greek friends in a banquet, eating a mass of different foods, which if we were really Orthodox Jews, we probably wouldn't be eating. They say, well, yeah, I have Jewish heritage. But, but to be honest, I'm, I, what really defines me is my business interests. Look how successful I've been. Look at all of the connections that I've made. Look at who I am in the society that I now live. Just like many conversations which say, well, I, yeah, I, don't. I, I like to call myself a Christian. And then, for the recipients of this letter something 
has happened. Because what we read is, okay, they, this letter might be addressed to these individuals who are outside of their homeland, fully immersed in the world around them, but something has happened to them as individuals which is compelling, which has changed everything. Because from their kind of, their past and their heritage, what we see, if you like, Peter is writing to the address Asia Minor, but the people that it's to are these. Those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with His blood. Now that changes everything. Okay, my, I, I, might, I might have a Jewish background. I might be trying to work out this kind of how I immerse myself in this world in which I now live as I trade on the coast of the Black Sea in purple cloth or in rice or in gold. I've got those business interests. I know that I'm going down to, the, um, to, the, to, to my friends' houses on a regular basis and, and we're banqueting together. I know that I'm not holding on to all of those historical constraints around only eating with my own uh, Jewish brotherhood. I know that that's gone. I know that the food that I eat doesn't conform to all of those historical regulations. But suddenly from that heritage, what has exploded into my life is Jesus. Oh, He's come from that heritage... Yes, but there's something that has just captivated me. And it's no longer just the idea of this heritage. It's Jesus who has broken into my life, which means that I am now, let's just imagine, just put your Asia Minor sandals on for a minute and gather together very early on the first working day of the week because as you gather in your little gathering with all of your other friends who are followers of Jesus, there is amazing news. A letter has arrived to our little gathering in Pontus from Peter and somebody stands up and opens up the scroll and reads this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. That's us. We're sat in Bithynia right now. And, and that's addressed to us. And, and, and we're all here. We're all Jewish heritage. But it goes on to say, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. You see, that's where we now are. Life has changed. 
Something has happened. It might have been a slow process which has convinced me to become obedient to Jesus. It might have been a dramatic event where somebody spoke to me and it was clear, wham, this Jesus changes everything. But my definition, my identity is no longer just somebody who is uh, connected historically by heritage to the Jewish faith. I'm not a Jew by birth anymore. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's who I am. You know, one of the exciting privileges of these past number of years is to have many conversations with people who have effectively reflected on the idea that there might have been a time when I thought I had the idea of being Christian, but now... I am truly a follower of Jesus. There is a step change that has taken place. I'm no longer just somebody who has that historical association because I was born in the UK and whenever I go into hospital and they ask me what what, uh, religion I am, I say Church of England or whatever it might be because that's what I was told Uh, when I was old enough to understand why I went to that school that my mum sent me to. You know, something has changed. I'm not carrying around a piece of paper that says I'm, I'm Christian because I was born into this country and this family. I have been confronted with Jesus. And that has changed my life. It means that on this first morning, this first working day, as it would be in Asia Minor, at that time, on a Sunday, this first working day, I've got up really early because we have gathered together. Me and my fellow Jews who have been convicted and compelled by the message of Jesus to gather together and to learn about him, to understand him, to pray together. That's what I'm about now. I didn't think it was going to happen, but here I am. I find myself unexpectedly in this situation. I didn't expect it. I might have looked for it, but I am compelled now. And that makes sense of those words there, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen according to the foreknowledge. Do you see how that connects with the idea of God's elect? It's the same idea. It's the idea of God intervening. You know, we could spend hours debating the idea of what that actually means, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We could, the reality is we could spend hours talking about it. The reality is this, from my perspective. It is beyond our understanding what that actually means. But it means this, at least. It means that at least the Bible talks about human accountability. The Bible makes it very clear that I am responsible as an individual to understand how I am going to come to terms with the message of of Jesus. But it also means this, that when I come to faith with Him, I'm able to say, do you know, the reality was I had absolutely no hope but to do this. I'm surprised that I find myself in this situation. I wasn't expecting to be a Christian. It was just compelling 
You see why it's compelled? They're compelled because they have been confronted with Jesus. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I, why I think it is so relevant for us today. There are so many people who are still sat in that situation of saying, yeah, I think I'm a Christian, but increasingly they are being confronted with the message of Jesus and it is becoming compelling. And at some point there is that moment where we say, this is it, this is it, it's going to be life-changing. We're going to see over these next weeks how life-changing it was for these people. It was certainly life-changing for Peter. He was a fisherman that ended up being crucified upside down because Jesus spoke to him one day and he was compelled by his message. There's no messing around in the message of Jesus. This is Peter who was compelled and he was speaking to people who were equally compelled. But look at what it means. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is working in me to sanctify me. What does it mean? What does sanctify mean? Two words that are really important in the Bible, justified, sanctified. Justified means this. It means that there has been a justice statement made in heaven. There has been a decree. You know, effectively, uh, the jury has stood up in the person of Jesus, before God, and there has been a statement which is made in heaven which is not guilty. That's justified. That's what it means when I'm a believer in Jesus. It's a statement in heaven, effectively. But there is the ongoing work of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The setting aside work the difference-making work, the change-making work, the reshaping-making work, which goes on in the life of everybody where that statement of justification has been made. What does sanctification mean? What does it look like? It means quite simply this, I am becoming obedient to Jesus. Now that changes everything. Because my priorities my attitudes, my first thoughts are now shaped by my obedience to Jesus rather than my commitment to my own ideals and shaping of life for myself. That's what obedience to Jesus means. It is a a dramatic reorientation. I say dramatic in the sense that the outcome is dramatic but the process can be really slow and really mundane. (laughs) But the great news is this. Quite simply this. If I've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, and God Himself in the Spirit is the one who's changing me, and Jesus is the one who is the model on which I am becoming obedient towards, then I'm safe in that process, aren't I? I'm secure in that process. There ain't nothing going to take me outside of that process because you see, everything, everything in that statement is about the work of God. Everything. He's the sanctifying one, sanctifying me, 
and it's because I've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, which marks me, which in a strange, amazing way, which we'll look at over this next period of time, actually connects me back to verse 1, God's elect, exiles. It kind of connects me back to the idea of being sprinkled as a Jew at the temple with the blood of Jesus. Here's the thing. This, these two verses of address, set the foundation for a letter which is written to people who have been compelled by the message of Jesus. Now, we can be observers of being compelled or we can be compelled as we move forward. I would love to think that everybody in this room over these next months are going to be listening because they are compelled. That's not my job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's also our responsibility to say, where do I sit in that? Am I being honest about where I am? Am I thinking about, am I compelled or am I observing compelled people? 